You're listening to Standing Before the Mast podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Hi folks, how's it going? My guest for this episode is sailor, author, and broadcaster Tom Cunliffe. Tom has written for many major sailing publications and currently works with Sailing Today and Classic Boat in the UK. He is the author of over two dozen books, notably The Shell Channel Pilot, Celestial Navigation, and Top Sail and Battle Axe. Top Sail and Battle Axe is the tale of the time he retraced the path of the Vikings by sailing his Bristol Channel pilot cutter, Herta, from Norway to Iceland, Greenland, and on to Newfoundland. Top Sail and Battle Axe has now been made available as an audiobook and may be purchased directly from his website, tomcunliffe.com. In addition to his writing and sailing, Tom has been a presenter on a few TV shows in the UK, Boatyard, and another called The Boats That Built Britain, which aired on BBC Two. As we learn in this podcast, the entire series of Boatyard is now available on YouTube. Tom also has a YouTube channel with many great videos offering tips, advice, and tricks to improve your skills. All of these links can be found off of his website, tomcunliffe.com. That's T-O-M-C-U-N-L-I-F-F-E dot com. The website features a new members club where one can join for a very modest charge and gain access to much more content, as well as participate in an engaging forum. Tom is a real ambassador for boating and has an infectious enthusiasm. He's a champion of helping the average person, of whatever means, get out on the water and safely hone their skills. I had a great time talking to Tom, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Greetings from Newport, Rhode Island. Well, nice to hear from Newport. Welcome, Tom. I appreciate you taking the time. How did you begin your sailing? Gosh. Well, it sort of all happened out of the blue, really, but it started with my dad, who decided that I needed to read some proper adventure stories instead of the rubbish I was reading. And uh, and he started to feed me books about uh, mountaineers and sailors. Uh, my father was a frustrated adventurer. He, he was born before World War I, and uh, he, he uh, had to go through the two wars and never really had a chance to do anything. People didn't in those days. We, we, we've lived in privileged times indeed. And he fed me these books. I, I read Joshua Slocum and, uh, and Eric Hiscock and various other people who, who fired my imagination. And then when I was 14, he, he, he took a real flyer and he said... Uh, I think what you ought to do is go sailing. I said, well, that'd be nice. And of course, uh, these days, you'd probably be sent on a sailing course somewhere or, or some such thing. In those days, this we were looking at, when are we looking at? 1961, I was 14 years old. And um, he and the father of my little mate who lived around the corner, who is now Emeritus Professor of Law at Oxford University. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, he and I, our dads decided that what they should do was, was hire a boat for us and send us away sailing. So they hired a little sailing sloop on the Norfolk Broads, a little cabin sloop that we could sleep in and cook in. And it had a gaff rig, and um, it's about 23 feet long, 24 feet long, I suppose. And um, they put us on a train in Stockport in the north of England. We, away we went across England and arrived in Norfolk uh, in the evening, went down to the yard, found the boat that they'd hired for us. And we were only 14. You know, I'm sure you wouldn't be able to do that now. You'd have to sign a thing saying you were 18 and promised <laughs> always to be a good boy. But there was none of that nonsense then. So we turned up and uh, duly lied to the man that we knew all about it and uh, climbed on. And all we had was a book that said, Learn Yourself How to Sail by a man called Peter Heaton. And quite frankly, you know, I've been written a few books myself now. I don't think his was all that good. But it was probably a child of its day. And um, 
armed with this book, we hoisted sail on this little boat and, uh, and away we went down the river. And um, I remember zooming off down the river and it, it, it all went quiet because when we pulled the sails up, it said in the book we had to be head to wind, so we were. And everything went crash, bang, wallop as it does. And there was all this noise and I thought, it's not meant to be like this. And I looked up and I, I couldn't believe the height of this sail. It, because from the perspective of the cockpit, when you've never seen it, you know, a sail is mm. big, isn't it? And um, anyway, we turned away from the wind, the sails filled, and we went ripping off down the river. And um, the reeds bowed in the breeze and the boat was silent and roaring along. And I was captivated. I thought, well, this is it. This is what I want to do with my life. Wow. And I never really looked back. That's brilliant. That's how it all started. And how big was that boat? She was about 24 feet, I think. Yeah. Oddly enough, somebody's just sent me some photos of her, and uh, I, I should have one ready to show you, but I didn't think of that, so I haven't. But it's a, it's a classic little wooden slip, you know. Right. Oh, that's brilliant. And then where did you take it from there? Did you did you t- further take lessons, or did you just... I never took a lesson. What happened was, um, that, was in the, that was in the spring, in the April, Easter time. Uh, and when we came home, our dads must have had a meeting and thought it had done us some good. Um, because they sent us again in the summer when we were on vacation and we had another week Uh, and then every year until we left school and went to uh, university when we were 18 years old um, they sent us two weeks of the year and and we taught ourselves how to sail in these boats and then when I went to university I joined the club and sailed racing dinghies with experts and realized how little I actually knew because nobody had taught me anything. I, I was so ignorant. I didn't right. even know about apparent wind. And I thought when you were tacking up the river, you had to put the burgee at 45 degrees to where you were going because that's where the wind was coming from. Wrong. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I learned all this stuff from the, from the boys at university and the girls at university who were proper club sailors who really knew how to do it. And, uh, and um, by the end of university, I was, I was going off to little schools and teaching kids in the summer and all that stuff, like summer camps. And, things, mm. and, um, and then, well, in my, towards the end of my university career, I was really a, I was a law student. And I went to America on a flight in those days. Oh, life was an adventure, you know. There was, there was no political correctness and nobody was trying to protect you. You could just get stuck in and get on with it. I'm pretty sorry for the way it looks now. But um, you could get on an aeroplane, a Pan Am Boeing 707 mm-hmm. uh, in London Airport for, and pay him £50 and you were dropped off at Idlewild Airport, which is JFK now. Sure. And you climbed off there and then you made your way as best you could. And I, after a while, cut a long story short, I, I ended up in, in Provincetown, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, on, on the Cape, where I found myself some work on a schooner called the Hindu, which I understand still works there. And oh. takes, takes tourists out for a jolly day around the bay and, and stuff. And, uh, and my skipper uh, was a man called Justin Avalar, who was of Portuguese extraction. And um, uh, I understand that he, either he or his father, or certainly the family, had worked on the Grand Banks uh, on, in the Dories. And he knew, a lot about, he knew a lot about all this stuff. His deck seamanship was superb. Mm. And he taught me all that stuff, how to turn a rope up properly, how to, how to secure, how to come alongside in the dinghy how to steer a boat, a big boat to windward. Mm. And um, he was great. And he was pretty kind to me, really, because I didn't know much. But he was, I think he must have been desperate for a hand because he took me on. And, uh, um, uh, and we became good friends. And years later, when I was sailing home from South America in my first serious cruising boat, I called in at Provincetown. Because um, rather than go up the usual route home 
um, from the Caribbean. We sailed up to the Caribbean from South America. Rather, the usual route home there for Europeans is to go up to the Azores, uh, maybe call in a Bermuda if you're feeling rich, and then go to the Azores and then home. <laughs> Um, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go to America because I liked America. I had a good time there. So, so we went to Charleston and worked our way up the coast. And then I went to, I went to Provincetown and, and Justin was just literally in his last year with the boat. And I came in with my own boat and anchored alongside him. And I think he was a little tear in his eye, you know, because oh, wow. he'd influenced me so much. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the United States has been my second home and uh, people have been good to me. Oh, that's so the, a lot of the education you got in, it, at the college level, was, more, was that more race-oriented and less seamanship? And whereas this gentleman taught you more seamanship. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the seamanship side of it has always, uh, has always appealed to me. I mean, as years have gone by, I have run race boats, and I've even been paid for doing it. But uh, that's a long time ago. And uh, my joy, really, is to be a good seaman and mm. to do it without fuss so right. that nobody knows you've done it. That's the trick, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we always used to say I worked as an assistant harbor master for the city of Newport for 15 years. And we always used to say uh, the most skilled mariners are the ones we had no interaction with or very little interaction with. They came in, yeah. they anchored, they moved on, you know. No fuss. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Newport is a, a wonderful place for me. I, I uh, um, actually... I'm trying to think how, how it came out. Yeah, we came to uh, America later in, uh, in in a much bigger boat that we had, and, and we had to clear it. And uh, we actually came down from Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, uh, and so we made, we made landfall at uh, oh, where was it? New Hampshire somewhere, and, and, and we were supposed to clear in. But uh, all the word on the street was that you don't do that. You keep your head down, and you go to Newport. And you clear in because there was a customs officer in Newport called George. George, George Monk. Yeah. yeah george monk yes and george understood sailors and he would he would hear what you had to say and he would give you you didn't mess him around he was a, he was a straight shooter but right. he gave you a fair crack of the whip and right. george monk was a real ambassador for the united states yeah Great yeah he was he'd zip down on his scooter or his motorcycle <laughs> yeah yeah he'd find you yeah he was he was great it's a bit different now post 9 11 yeah now i expect so yeah. Was that trip when you we scooted down to New Hampshire and then to Newport? Was that the end of this trip? Yes, yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah, top, top sail and battle axe. That's right. Yeah, you, I've just just done an audio book of that actually, which folks can buy off my website. Ah, and, um, a, a jolly good, a jolly good listen it is. You can listen to it while you're bumping down the freeway there in your car. Is that? Did you read it? Is that your your yes. your, your yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I wasn't having some actor read it and pay him for the privilege. No, I can, I can more or less read myself. I went to school, you know. Excellent. How did that trip come about? How did you uh, wind oh. up retracing the, the steps? Yeah, well, when we came back from the South American trip. My wife and I really wanted to just go sailing. You know, we wanted to be at sea and, 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 and get to know each other and, and see the sea and see the people of the sea. And uh, we spent two or three years on the first trip down to South America and home via North America. Uh, and then we had a baby, uh, and we didn't really want to take the baby to sea straight away. We wanted to get, get to grips with it and everything. So uh, I got work. First of all, I became mate on a coasting vessel, a, a commercial ship. And, um, but that's not really what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I got a job at the National Sailing School in Cowes, teaching offshore sailing and examining the, uh, the, uh, in the Yachtmaster scheme. 
which is our official government scheme for training yachtsmen. To do this, I had to pass a number of exams, which didn't come easy. I didn't like taking exams. I'd already given all that up when I left university, but I had to do it. And um, I was lucky with my examiner because uh, the guy who examined me for the big one, which was my offshore yachtmaster's certificate, I thought I was going to get some some guy who was going to show up with a clipboard and a yacht club tie on. That wasn't my style at all in those days. Um, I mean, I'll talk with anybody now, but in those days, I was a bit slow about all that. And uh, the chap showed up, and he had an old duffel coat on, and um, he had bulging pockets, and he was walking a bit funny, and it turned out he had a wooden leg. Oh. And um, and he, he didn't have a clipboard, and uh, he got on board, and he said, oh, this is good, because the boat had no engine. I'd given up with the engine. This was this gaff cutter, 12-ton gaff cutter, a Norwegian pilot cutter. We'd sailed home from America. Well, sailed home from Rio with no engine. So we were quite good at sailing the boat, but, but uh, I didn't know how he was going to examine my power handling. As it turned out, he didn't care about that. He looked at the boat and he said, oh, I'm going to enjoy today. I said, I hope you can sail it. And he, I said, well, I'll do my best, sir. And, um, and off we went. And it was great because he emptied his pockets when he got on board. And instead of pulling out clipboards and a load of stuff, he had, in one pocket he had a pork pie. That was his lunch. And in the other he had a bottle of brown ale. Wow. <laughs> I thought, well, this is my sort of guy. And he examined <laughs> me, and he examined me very fairly. And he did, he, did, um, he did discover a few areas where I was falling short because I had no formal training. Mm. Um, and he advised me about those, but he said he had no choice but to pass me because I could sail this boat anywhere without an engine. And uh, I understood the basics about the rule of the road and all that stuff. I was a safe mariner. And um, so I got my ticket, and uh, then... I went off on the coaster, and then after that, I realised that I could end up being mate on a small commercial vessel. I didn't want to do that. So um, I went to Cowes and got myself examined to be an offshore instructor and examiner, and uh, which was asking a lot because I'd done a lot of homework um, over the six months to fill in the gaps in my theoretical knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and I passed. And the guy who examined me there said, well, I'm leaving. Uh, in three months' time, why don't you apply for my job? It's a great job. You get properly paid, and, and there's a future in it. So, um, so I did, and I got it. So for four years, I taught sailing at Cows, and I learned so much doing that. Because mm. the guys who were working with me, this was the National School, and we had some really top guys there. We had the uh, guy, Rod Carr, who became the Olympic coach and the chairman of uh, British Yachting, really, and uh, Stu Quarry, who was one of the great offshore navigators, and Neil Graham the man who went round the world with Laurie Smith on Rothmans. And, uh, oh, wow. And, uh, not, a, not a man you messed around with. And, uh, it was just brilliant. We had a great team. And um, uh, I learned from them. And I think they learned from me about anchoring and how to secure alongside properly and how to heave too. Because mm. none of the racers knew anything about that stuff. Wow. And I, it was my bread and butter. But then I learned how to really sail about fast from them. So that was exciting. Anyway, after four years of this, I was burned out, couldn't teach anymore. And my wife was, my wife, Ross, who has been party to all this stuff. She was sick of running a bed and breakfast on the back of the Isle of Wight in the, in the house that we had. And um, we decided we'd sell up and buy another boat and go for a sail. So our daughter was four by now. So we did. So we bought a big pilot cutter, um, a 35-ton Bristol Channel pilot cutter, 51 feet off the deck, wow. um, 65 or so overall. And... Um, well, we signed on a troop of bandits and we sailed her up to Norway and then mm-hmm. we sailed her to Iceland and Greenland and Newfoundland following the Viking voyage to North America, which took them several generations, but we did it in the summer. Mm-hmm. And 
it was great because I, I researched all the, all the Icelandic sagas and I really felt I was quite intimate with these old Vikings who'd made this trip in their, in their amazing vessels. And, and doing it in this boat was sort of hooked us up with them, really, because she leaked like a basket, the poor old girl. I mean, she was still the best boat I'll ever own. She was without vice. She was never designed. She never appeared on paper. She was built on the beach by men who knew what they were doing. Wow. For another man, the pilot, who knew what he wanted. And they turned out the most beautiful and wonderful boat. And um, so with her, we sailed the seas. And uh, she did leak. We couldn't stop her leaking. I poured my shirt into trying to stop her leaking. I, every penny I'd got for years. Every time I had some money, I used to take it to a yard and say, look, sort it out. And they've spent all this money and nothing ever made any difference. She wow. always did. But what I discovered was, and this was, um, this was uh, quite a philosophical discovery, really, Chris. If mm -hmm. you can chuck it out, faster than it's coming in and you're not being exhausted in the process you're ahead of the game and you're completely seaworthy so long as your pumps aren't going to give up right and the pump the main pump on this boat was was uh, built in 1911 same year as the boat and it wasn't going to give up because it was completely non-technical it had a big cylinder um with a plunger that went up and down the plunger was made of elm um and it was rock solid there was nothing going to happen to that and the valves were leather and at one stage in the Greenland Sea, one of the valves did pack up and it just fell away to nothing and the pump stopped working. And that wasn't any good because we needed 35 strokes an hour to stay ahead of the game. And that was all right. And um, I looked at this, I got the pump to bits and I had a look at it and I realised it was just the right size, this valve that had failed, for the tongue out of the deck shoe that I'd bought for my daughter. <laughs> and that she was about to outgrow. So I cut the tongue out and fashioned it and made it into a new valve. And do you know, I sold the boat, I think, 13 years later, and it was still working. So it was a good pair of deck shoes. Wow. <laughs> so this was a hand pump. This was... Yes, oh, absolutely, yes. This was, it was no a lovely thing. It was a beautiful thing, a lovely curved, curved wrought iron handle. It was like a, mm. like a village pump and a beautiful action. Uh, and it just shifted the water most wonderfully. Well, that's amazing when you think of today's electric bilge pumps. Pack it in so quickly, you yes. know? Yes. Well, this lasted 80 years. To my certain knowledge, I don't know what happened to it after that. But it was what, great. What was her construction that she was so leakly? Was it... Uh... Well, it, uh, I mean, she was... There had to be some fault somewhere in one of the big bolts that went through the deadwoods or something like that. It had to be something obscure like that because we mm. refastened the boat, we recorked the boat, and um, she was quite sound. Right. Um, you know, she didn't rack around or anything. You felt very confident with her. I mean, we sailed her through a named hurricane going down to America, going down to the Caribbean from America. Hurricane Klaus, 1980, I don't know, four, I think, or three. Mm. And um, we were hove to in the Gulf Stream under trysail and double reef staysail. Uh, in I don't know how many knots of wind, but it kept the Canberra, the, the line of the Canberra in Bermuda. She wasn't going to venture out. Right, and a swan, a big swan, fairly near to us that unfortunately kept on sailing. And when you keep on sailing in these conditions, you are liable to come unstuck. And she fell over, and there was, there was serious damage. And um, by heaving to, you can everything goes quiet, and mm. you take the strain off everything. And you're taking the seas on the shoulder, not running along with them coming up under you, trying to broach you. Everything goes quiet. You're under complete control, but you have to have a boat that will heave too. And right. most modern yachts with a thin keel just won't. They right. don't have enough forefoot to hold them up. They're Bermudan rigs, so when you rig the main, 
reef the main, the centre of effort moves forward, which is not what you want when no. you're trying to heave to. You need plenty of grunt back aft. And of course, the gaff main comes down straight. So the centre of effort stays where it is. You take the jib out of it and back the staysail. And you've got this wonderful balance and you've got a deep forefoot going down there that's gripping the water. And um, these pilot cutters that I've had would heave to probably about 45 degrees from the wind. Mm. And the big one uh, in 40 knots of wind, a full gale, made no leeway at all. Mm. She foreached very slowly straight across the wind. And uh, it was magnificent. I think I read, is it uh, the parties, Lynn and Larry party always had that design boat. That that was his thing. That's right. Actually, Larry's book, uh, Lynn and Larry's book about, uh, what's it called? Storm tactics. Mm -hmm. Um, If you've got a small boat, I would strongly recommend that everybody reads that because um, I mean, Larry's gone, hasn't he now? He's gone to the board, bless him. Gone to the big shipyard in the sky. But what a great guy. What a great, great guy. And he wrote well and he was a great seaman. And his, his recommendations in that book for surviving storms in small vessels, much smaller than my pilot cutter, his recommendations are slightly different from mine because his boats were different in terms of such sheer size, which does make a difference. Sure. Size does matter out there sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but it's, it's a wonderful book, and, and, and certainly he likes to take the seas on the shoulder as well. Uh, but wow. he has different ways of doing it. He involves parrot anchors and things like that. Uh, good stuff. And he knows what he's talking about because he's been there. Now, when you did uh, the, the top selling battle axe trip, that obviously was before GPS. So you navigated all celestial back then and yeah, still yeah. do, I imagine. Well, actually, <laughs> I've, I've, I've been faced with a dilemma here, uh, Chris, because um, I, when we first went off in the, in the Norwegian pilot cutter to South America, which, by the way, was a real Colin Archer, designed and built by Colin Archer in 1903 which makes it really special. That boat would be an icon in Norway today. Very different from a lot of the Colin Archer type boats, which can't get out of their own way. Mm. She sailed like a witch, and she had to, because as I say, a lot of the time, there's no engine. So um, when we went off with her, there was no choice. You navigated by the stars and the sun or nothing. And um, I went on a course put on by the Merchant Navy, uh, which involved me in, uh, in, in quite complicated uh, spherical trigonometry involving haversites and, and, and stuff. And um, I struggled with that because uh, I've always been interested in science. I did science advanced level at school, but uh, I did struggle with the mathematics. The mathematics didn't come easily to me. And so I'd never made it as a, phys- as a physics man. And I struggled with the maths. And I struggled with the maths for this astro-navigation as well. So when I went to sea, before I went off on the trip, I went on a delivery because I was delivering boats at that stage. And my father-in-law came with me to, to crew. And he was, a, he was a great bloke. He was a Spitfire pilot uh, in, in World War II. Wow. And he knew the value of human life. He had a good, he had a good, uh, you know, good, good, good handle on things. And he said to me, what are you doing with all this when I was doing my Astro? Because it used to take me 25 minutes to work a forenoon site uh, on a good day. And he said, um, I brought my stuff here. Do you want me to show you how I do it? I said, yeah, yeah, go on. And he did it using uh, the air navigation site reduction table, which were developed, I think, probably during the war, so that the bomber pilots could, could very rapidly calculate their position. Mm. And they were magnificent. They cracked the job. I was able to do it. By the time we'd finished the delivery, I could do the job in seven minutes. Right. It took me half an hour before. And I was grateful to him. And, and, and if some years later, 
I wrote a textbook on astro-navigation called Celestial Navigation, which is actually a bestseller. Loads and loads of people buy this book from this chap who's not very good at mathematics. And um, the first editions I dedicated to my father-in-law because um, it was through him that I'd seen the truth. Oh, that's and, fantastic. And so making that trip was all done on Astro. And after that, it was meat and drink to me. It was easy. Mm. And um, on the Battle Axe trip, uh, I navigated by Astro. And my mate did it as well, so we had backup. And, um, and we managed fine. Mm. Uh, no problem at all. We had no radar, no nothing. So we were very much on our own in those days. There was no radio. So, well, there was radios, but I wasn't in the spring for that because I didn't have any money. <laughs> so we were entirely on our own. So we left Iceland with a forecast and headed off for Greenland. And after that, we were cast off eight to the winds in astro-navigation. It was wonderful, really. Wow. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I, I never realized all the times I looked at celestial navigation, the site reduction tables were there. And it wasn't until I watched a video that you did on YouTube where you visited the M. Ray Nori uh, facility. Yeah. Where yeah. they have the old books and it introduced a whole another level of math that I was previously unaware of. That's right. Yes, Norris tables. I, I I still have a copy, and um, it's on my boat's bookshelf. I don't like going to sea without it, just in case everything turns to rats. But you've got to do some sums to be able to use all that stuff. But the side reduction tables make it quite easy. Mm. And um, I don't know whether I'm going to do it this winter, but I probably will. I'm going to put a series of videos up on my my website where my club is for the members to join and uh, um, and they will be able to walk you through astro navigation and show you how to do it. I'll probably make some charge for it because it'll, it'll take me a long time to put those together. Mm. But uh, I look forward to doing that because it's a no nonsense approach that I've developed. Um, actually the book I wrote, I, I simply used the notes that I dreamed up for the national sailing school for the astro navigation course, which they asked me to do because none of the racing sailors could do it. Of course. Right. And it's like falling off a bike to me. It's dead easy, you know. I don't know why people make such a fuss about it. How did you get into the writing? Was it from telling the tale of a recent trip, or was it instructional to begin with? Well, I never really thought about it, Chris. And then um, I was, uh, when I was in South America, I was there for over a year with my wife doing this and that. And uh, we went up the Andes, uh, and we didn't have a ticket. We just found our way across the continent using local buses back of trucks and things like that. And we got our way. We went right up to La Paz and up to Lake Titicaca, which is the highest navigable water in the world. And I found myself a fisherman and slipped him a few dollars. And we spent three days sailing the waters with him. And while I was doing this, I thought, well, I've got a pretty, pretty useful experience. This is unusual. And I wrote a long letter to my father, who was, um, who was a lawyer. And, and, and he wrote back to me and said, look, boy, this is really good stuff. You ought to look further into this and start thinking about writing. Uh, and so I did. And when I got back from that trip, I submitted an article to Yachting Monthly and they scolded up quick. And then when I was on the Battle Axe trip, um, I sort of didn't think much more about it, really, because I needed ready cash. And you don't make much as a writer by ready, you know, mm. unless you're unbelievably lucky. You're <laughs> going to struggle in the early years. Yeah. And um, so I did the teaching and all that stuff and the examining. And then, uh, then we went off on the Battle Axe trip. And, uh, uh, at the end of that, having come down through the United States, we ended up in the Caribbean, and I found myself uh, stormbound in a in a in a sort of mangrove swamp, really, a, a little hurricane hole in Martinique. And I wrote an article in there because I've got nothing else to do, and I called it "The Simplicity of the Stars." And this is how you navigate the stars, guys. And I submitted it to Yachting Monthly, and um, 
they were, of course, in those days, you had to put it all in the post box. So it took ages to get back and for them to find me. And I never really got a reply until I got home, which was about six months later. But they'd been very impressed by this article. And basically, uh, they hired me to write their seamanship and navigation as a freelance. Hmm. Uh, and that, that gave me a core income. It started from there. And then uh, shortly after that, I wrote Topsail and Battle Axe, and I started writing navigation books. And before I knew where I was, I was a, a, a nautical writer. And sort of wow. that's how it happened. I carried on sailing for my living. I still do. I mean, I still, I still go sailing with people who are perhaps a bit short of common. I'm not terribly athletic these days because I'm over 70. I'm not the man mm. I was. But, um, but I've got a, like a lot of 70-year-olds, I've got it up here. I've just been knitting all my life. You know, I've been watching right. what goes on, listening to my betters and seeing what I can learn. So although I'm not as quick on my feet as I was, I can still manage. I sail my own boat every year. But um, I can tell them what to do. Mm. explain to people give them confidence and, uh, and that's what we do so, so it's more instructional than rather than say delivering somebody's yacht it, it, that's yeah i don't want to do that anymore yeah that's a tough life and i admire the guys who do it mm. they see the world they really do they see life <laughs> and they see the sea and they see the sordid depths to which people will go before they send a boat to sea i mean sometimes it's like the coffin ship you know right send them out to sea and get the insurance money that's oh Oh, that's brutal. So the guys who do that, I think, are wonderful. I've, I've got a tremendous amount of time for them, but I wouldn't want to do it for the rest of my life, no, sir. And anyway, uh, not now. Wow. No. My first introduction to you, my wife is is British originally, and we stream a lot of British television, and I stumbled upon the show called Boatyard, which oh, I, could, yeah. I couldn't get enough of, and then, it, I don't know, it went away. <laughs> it did, but it's out again. It's on YouTube now. Did you know I did, yeah. I saw it. I saw it mentioned on your website, yeah. Yeah, we've just uh, we've just relaunched it. The producer, a chap called Larry Walford, who is a cracking guy. Uh, we had so much fun making those shows. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. It was like um, the, uh, the the girl who organises you. You know, you, when you go around, you got the camera and the, man, mm. the dead cat and all that stuff. And there's 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 usually a young woman who I don't know. This is not a sexist thing. It's just the way it falls out. Maybe it's not anymore, but in those days it was. And there'd be a young woman who cracks the whip and keeps everybody in line. She used to say me and Larry were like an old married couple. You know, we'd be nagging away at each other. Nagging away at each other. But we loved each other, really. I had great respect for each other. And I think we made a good series there. And later, um, well, that's now appeared on YouTube. Because mm. uh, Larry's managed to get the copyright back. And he's, he's put it out there. And it's getting big following, which is lovely. Because it's all about ordinary guys fixing boats where there seems to be no hope and no chance and uh, will they get a result or won't they and most of them do right and, um there are some amazing things i mean in that show i don't know what yeah i think dennis is up there now. there's a chap called dennis who lived in the north of england and he lived in a village that had been built on the plain of north yorkshire which is pretty well pretty far away from civilization and this village had been built essentially to service a big power station a big coal-fired power station the power station had been shut down and the village was still there and it was massive unemployment. Lots of people had no jobs. The morale was very low. And this chap, Dennis, who lived there and was in amongst all this, he, he was no quitter. He wouldn't give up. And he, he, he had a, his backyard was full of old rubbish. It was a sort of scrapyard full of old engines and cars that were never going to go again and all sorts of interesting things. Um, that he would find something he could use always in his backyard. And he bought this boat for 200 pounds at an auction 
and it was a it was a, it was a boat with a with a Ford engine, an old Ford V4 engine out of a truck, and um, petrol engine, and it drove a jet stream thing that, that drove this thing. It was a speedboat, and he bought this boat, and all the locals said, "Ah, oh, you'll never get that going. You've got no chance." And um, but Dennis wasn't going to give up, and he, he he did it, you know. And I I had to do a piece to camera about the whole situation. And I stood in a derelict dog track where the dog racing used to be, <laughs> with these power stations behind me all falling down with ivy and it was desperate scene. And I stood in there and I said, you know, your average journalist in the national press will tell you that yachting is for privileged people. And I said, well, you know, come and tell this guy that. Here he is. Look what he's done. And it was the most wonderful opportunity yeah. to explain to the people who are watching television, and that's everybody. That yachting and sailing and being on the water is not about privilege. If you go to the average little club down our way, down on the back of Southampton Water, they're in there. You look in the car park, there's some desperate old wrecks in there that they've driven down to the boat in. Because they've put all their money into getting the boat, they want to be on the water. They're in the poorhouse because they're sailing. Mm. And that's what drives them. And that's what makes them go. And it's what makes us all tick, Chris, isn't it? It's a desire to be on the water. And these guys have so much fun and so much comradeship that it's a it's a wonderful thing to me. I just that was the beauty of that show, and you know it, you followed these people through their 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 process and their path. I really enjoyed that. I'm glad you did. And and, and yeah. on the back of that, um, a couple of years later, Larry bullied the BBC into doing a series called Boats That Built Britain. Right. Um, and that was about uh, that was a classier operation, but. Uh, it was it was a, a series of of shows about boats that have been influential in the creation of the British psyche and and mm. and, uh, and um, that was a, a great series. I loved doing that. It was wonderful, and that's coming up on YouTube as well. So if you go to the Boatyard channel, that's where it is. Mm. I'm afraid I don't know how to find it. I ought to be able to flash up a little sign, shouldn't I? But if you search the Boatyard channel, yeah. I think you'll probably come across it. It'll be there somewhere. I think I found it. I was watching one of your YouTube videos, and it came up as recommended alongside. Uh, okay, yeah, a, right. a, yeah, a suggested one. And one of the ones I watched, uh, I think these guys was it a, a fari? Uh, they were sailing this old work boat. Uh, you're up in Scotland, a fifi. I believe. A fifi, a excuse fifi. me, fifi. Yeah. What a thrilling vessel! My yeah. goodness me, this is a. I don't know the exact year, but it's around about 1900. Um, this was the final flowering of the Scottish lugger, a big, big boat, 70 feet long, uh, displaces, I don't know, 70 or 80 tons, plumb-ended, double-ended, mm. um, no guardrails, no nothing, and huge masts and lug sails, massive lug sails. Um, I think the foresail's pushing on 2,000 square feet. And the foremast, it's like this, and it weighs a ton, and mm. it's completely unstayed. And they used to lower it every night at sea, these guys. Because when you're lying to drift nets, these are drifters, they would lie to a mile of drift net. And the boat feathers up to the drift nets over the bow to keep her head to wind and sea. And if you've got a great big one-ton mast up there, you know what happens, don't you? It'd be like Mm. anchoring in a schooner. (laughs) (laughs) The the foremast takes the bow away, doesn't it? And they don't lie as easily as cutters, it's got to be said. And these luggers were the same, so they lowered that great big mast every night. And then oh, they went man. below and let the nets do their wonderful, magical work in the moonlight as the herring come up for the nightlight and fall 
into the net. And then they pull them in in the morning, shake them into the hold, and take them in. And the boats flew, they were so fast, these luggers. A lugger is always faster than a cutter if it's well sailed, because mm -hmm. the sail is a perfect aeroporter. It's not interfered with by the mast, and there's no standing rigging. So it just gets up there and sucks the life out of the wind. And when we filmed that show, uh, we were sailing across the Firth of Forth in this boat. There was an eight-foot sea running. She was just stamping across it, didn't even feel it. Wow. And um, she was logging about 10 knots. And we had a chase boat that was a, a little speedboat thing with the cameras in it. And they couldn't keep up with it. They could not keep up because the sea was killing them and we were just stamping across it. And every so often, we had to spill all the wind and slow the old girl down and they'd catch up and do something. Then we'd sheet in and woof, off we'd go again. My goodness me, but I've got to tell you, Chris, we didn't tack it. Because yeah. tacking that boat was something else. The only way you could hoist these big yards and this big sail was with a steam capstan. And they had a little steam capstan aft that they used to stoke up. And that also hauled the nets. Mm. So the boats were beyond normal manpower, even though they had no winches and nothing except for this one steam capstan. And um, to tack it, you have to shove it up into the wind with the way on and hope the bow is going to go through the wind, drop the sail, the foresail, shunt the whole thing around the mast and re-hoist it to lure it again. So it's uh -huh. to lure the mast. Meanwhile, the vessel is carried away. It needs 10 young Scottish fishermen with stranglers hands who've been doing it all their lives to be able to do that. Wow. Our crew were all about 85 years old. They were all old fishermen. They were fantastic. I mean, you watch the program and the faces on them are fantastic. They've seen it all. Yeah. But, you know, they weren't up for doing that. And, uh, yeah, they weren't young guys in that video. They were... Well, they were me and some of the other lads. But they were there. No, they're, those guys are old. Yeah. They're ancient, the blokes mm -hmm. on the fishing boat. They are, really. Yeah. They're really... Yeah. <laughs> I think the youngest was 60. <laughs> but they made her move. Boy, that, they did. Yeah. Yeah, and they gloried in it. They were absolutely hopping. They loved it, and so did I. It oh, was, it was, that was, in a way, the great moment of that whole series, when that big lugger took off and just flew. And you realise what it must have been when there were fleets of these vessels. And the thing is, the, the, the remarkable thing is that uh, the technology that created them killed them. Hmm. Because uh, luggers in Scotland were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And these boats finally achieved this massive dimensions. And, and there was another type called a Zulu, which had a cutaway stern. There was one of them on the vineyard, actually, for quite a long time, a small one, about 50 feet. Mm -hmm. And there was a young man living on board. And uh, I don't know what became of her. She was on the vineyard for quite a while. And um, I know because uh, I think Nat talked to me about it, Nat Benjamin, and also, of course, Ginny Jones, Virginia Crowell Jones, who mm -hmm. used to run the office at Gannon and Benjamin. Yep. There's nothing she doesn't know about what's happening on the water. Uh, we correspond with her every every week. She keeps us up to date with what Nat and Ross and the boys are doing. And uh, we know what's going on, you know, over here. We're not just on an island in the Atlantic. <laughs> so, um, so this Zulu uh, was the same as a, as a Fifey. And they, they, they're big flyers. They got bigger and bigger. In the end, they could only sail them using these steam capstans. And it only took 10 years for somebody to have the bright idea of saying, well, wait a minute. If we got this capsule and made it a bit bigger and stood it on its end and put a propeller on the back, we wouldn't need all these sails. Mm. And so the steam drifter was born, uh, which was said by one fisherman, and I quote, the sweetest vessel ever built to do a job. <laughs> so it was. The steam drifter. What a magical vessel. What are you doing on YouTube now? You, you have your own channel. Will you give do, like, yeah. tips and, and advice? Yeah, we got loads of subscribers all over the world, which is really great. We get lots of feedback, so there's quite a bit of uh, toing and throwing. Mm. And um, 
I made a video this morning because I'm in quarantine at the moment. Right. Um, if you were here in real life, I couldn't talk to you because I've just come back to Britain from Denmark in my car. And, um, well, they say, well, sorry, mate, you've come back from Denmark. You've got to be quarantined. So the fact that Denmark's got virtually no COVID doesn't matter. I mustn't go on about this. You know, we mustn't no. we must, we, it is what it is, and we must make the best of it. I so can't go to Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Don't go there. So me and Roz are in, uh, are in quarantine for another couple, two or three days. And um, Roz, who is the ideas person around here, came up with an idea for a video. She said, look, she said, um, why don't you put the Q flag up outside the gate, you know, the quarantine <laughs> flag, and make a video about Q flags? Well, I did because um, um, I have uh, I have this club on my website, which is tomcunliffe.com, and um, people pay a small amount of money, mm -hmm. and they get access to all sorts of articles and videos and things which are not available to the public. And um, also, we have a sort of forum once a month where we get together and kick ideas around. It started off as a question and answer session with me pontificating but i think some of the guys are so switched on that i've just i've decided <laughs> that's a bit arrogant on me so it's going to be a forum in future and um we got one guy in the caribbean who's particularly smart he's uh, um he, he runs a boat professionally i don't exactly know what he does because he doesn't tell us but he's a good lad and he's one of our boys and um the question arose what do you do with a cue flag you know when you come in somewhere you put it up obviously and what it says is my vessel is healthy and i request pratique and i'm waiting for a customs man Customer mm -hmm. comes out, he clears you, Q flag comes down, and then you put up your courtesy. Courtesy flag, right. Not before, because you're not really in the country. You're mm. in quarantine before that. And I never thought of that. And somebody asked me what to do, and I didn't really know. And I came up with some sort of answer. One very sort of common sense answer. This chap, Michael, put us all straight, and that was brilliant. So I thought I'd share this with the world at large, uh, not just the members of the club, by putting it all on YouTube. So I've done that. It was a bit of fun. And... Uh, I was able to tell them the story about my first Q flag, which I didn't have one. And we were heading up for, uh, I don't know, or maybe I'd lost it because we were going to Barbados. And, uh, I couldn't find it. It was gone. So um, I'd read a book by Bill Tillman, H.W. Tillman, the great mountaineer and explorer of the 50s and 60s. What a guy. Mm. What a guy. That's another story. But uh, <laughs> he had a Q flag. And he always liked a curry. He used to give his crews curry for breakfast, and they never signed on twice. But that was the <laughs> one. And, uh, and he had to make a Q flag. So... He got a bit of white cloth and he put it in a pot with some curry powder and boiled it up. And that did it. Dyed it a lovely deep yellow. So I did the same. I made mm. myself a cube flag with curry powder and it was good. So I told them that little story. So that's all up there. And that's, that was today's little story. I mean, I, I try to, if I'm trying to make a point on YouTube, I, I, I like to try and wrap it up with a bit of a, a, bit of a yarn if I can. Sure. It makes it more human, doesn't it? Mm. Over here in Europe, we don't see them anymore because uh, within the European Union, you can go where you like and, a bit like being in the United States, you don't show a Q flag when you change from state to state. So right. But now we've got Brexit, we'll, we'll now be uh, subject to all that stuff as of next year, I think. Oh, you will? Yeah, sure. You cross the channel, you've got to clear in again. I think we probably will have, unless they're able to sort something out. It's all very interesting at the moment, because uh, quite a few of us keep our boats on the continent. Mm. Um, um, the way it's looking is that our boats will be fine. Um, but when they come back into the UK, the UK will try and make us pay tax. Um, but there's been a huge outcry about that, and they've made a, an arrangement so that we don't have to. But the problem we've got is that we might only be allowed to be on the continent for 90 days at a time, mm. which for retired people who are cruising there a lot, it's going to be a, a big problem. So I think they'll find a way around it. They usually do, but uh, as long as people are in good faith, 
Yeah. I think, you know, deep down, a lot of the people in the EU are in good faith, and we're in pretty good faith. There's been a lot of sabre rattling and a lot of loose talk, but I think essentially we're all friends and brothers. Right. And I certainly consider myself a European. I'm not overstruck on the way the EU runs itself, but I'm absolutely a European. And mm-hmm. um, I'm pleased to be so. So, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it all works out. Great. One of the things I enjoyed are some of your tips. Uh, I think it was on maybe your Facebook page, your top tip. Oh, and and one, of the, one of the recent ones really struck home with me because it was about how people monkey with depth sounders. And yeah. I always want to know the number I'm looking at is the depth of water I'm in, because like you said, it's a navigational tool. I thought that was a brilliant observation. I'm glad, I'm glad you agree with me because there've been one or two that don't. And, um, uh, you know, having talked for all those years uh, and written all these textbooks, it does, it, it can concentrate your mind. It makes you analyze what you're doing. And, and it's become absolutely clear to me that, uh, that that's what we should be doing. I mean, the, the way these charter operators say, oh, we've, uh, We've put depth under keel on the echo sound, and we've added a bit just to keep you safe. What a load of rubbish. How mm-hmm. dare they patronise the customers like that? What an outrage. Because if they tell you, well, how much does the boat draw, Governor? Well, the boat draws 1.8 metres. Right. And the echo sound is set to read depth of water. So if it reads 2 metres, I've got 0.2 under. I mean, a child in arms, a 10-year-old can do that some. But if I'm out there and I want to know where I am, and I'm using the echo sound to cross-check my position, which I do every time, because right. any proper navigator takes another source, even if you're using a chart plotter. Mm. Have a look, see what the depth's supposed to be, and see if it stacks up. And if it doesn't, <laughs> what's yeah. going on here? Have right. another look. Yeah. I remember I was a crew member on a 83-foot Fife catch, which began her life as a schooner, was a catch when I was on her, and is now a schooner again. She's called a, a Adventurous. Um, but when I was on her, she was called Isabel. And yeah. we, we went up the Mystic River and the captain kept a, a keen eye on the depth. And more than once we, we bumped. I, I mean, she drew uh, 10 or 11 feet. Uh, yeah. You know? And yeah. so we, 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 we plowed through and he was, he was always keeping an eye on that. And what was his depth reading? Was it, was it depth of water? Or was it depth it of was depth of water. water. Yeah. And he, and he had the tide chart out and he was, he, we timed it. We, we timed it. Uh, based on when you we would. were going to go in. Yeah, yeah. We, we had yeah. no choice. And, did you go up through the bridge into the museum? Yes, we did. Yeah, and then yeah, we, got, the side, yeah. we got socked in with some weather, so which was fine with us. We spent some time at the museum going through some books and stuff. Yeah. One of the best births on the East Coast, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Actually, I remember Isabel because uh, I, I was involved for a while with uh, another Fife that was on the East Coast for a long time called Cotton Blossom. Oh, yeah. Cotton Blossom 4. She's come back over here now, and she's been rebuilt and redone as Halloween with her original rig. But in those days, back in the 80s, she was uh, um, operating on the East Coast with a catch ring, Mm. and she was called Cotton Blossom 4, and she was skippered by an Englishman called Richard Griffiths, who Mm. was a a great skipper and a great character, and uh, could tell you a tale. Yeah. But he was one of the best varnishers I've ever seen. She was a wonderful boat, beautiful. Lovely. Yeah. So original down below. Lovely to sit in those saloons, isn't it? Breathe, yeah. Breathe in the years. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Your current boat, you, you, went, you went to fiberglass. I did in the end, yeah. Because yeah. I've been given 40 years of my life to serve the cause and um, <laughs> not getting any younger. I thought it was about time we tried plastic. I mean, I don't know if it'll ever catch on. That and the right. Bermuda rig. It's a bit mm. new isn't it? But I thought I'd give it a go. <laughs> yeah, I got on with it. 
And you know, it's not bad, is it? Right. Well, how did she wind up in Denmark? You just like cruising up there? Yeah, I mean, my boat, uh, uh, you, you may not know, my boat is actually an American boat. It's a Mason 44. Right. Um, which is an archetypal American cruising boat, isn't it? It's, uh, it's a classic. And um, when we were looking for a boat over here, we, we sold, um, after we had the big pilot cutter, we sold her and, and, and built a replica in Nova Scotia. And uh, we kept her for about 11 years or 12 years. And finally, thought we, we can't keep on with this because these big gaff rig boats, if anything happens to me, we're sailing them two-handed, you know, with no winches. Mm. If anything happens to me, my wife, Roz, is not going to be able to cope. So um, we thought we'd get something we could both sail with one hand. And um, so we bought a 44-foot modern yacht. And it's wow. a piece of cake, isn't it? What a treat <laughs> to sail. And what a lovely thing. So um, we couldn't find anything in Europe that we wanted. I mean, the designers, are, I think some, there are some good designers over here, but a lot of them have lost the plot. The mainstream ones have lost the plot. Mm. And um, we weren't interested in any of their offerings. Uh, there are some good boats, uh, very good boats. The Dutch make some excellent boats, but we didn't really fancy them because they weren't beautiful enough. Because mm. um, a boat's got to be beautiful to our eyes. And um, in the end, Ross said, well, let's go to America. They've got some lovely boats in America. So after looking for a year, we went to America and immediately we found the, the, the Olden, what was it, Olden 43, I think, or the, um, or the uh, Mason 44. It was going to be one of those two. And in the end, we went for the Mason because um, I've done my time with, with boats that I bought on performance. And uh, I think what I wanted now was comfort and I wanted big tanks and, and plenty of room. And, and, and the Mason had more room than the old. She was so fine. Uh, doesn't sail quite so well, but she's not bad. You know, she mm. sails very adequately and good enough for us. So that was it. So we brought her over here, and um, now we've got her in Europe. Uh, we'd had her for a few years, and we thought, well, let's go and have a look at the Baltic, because we hadn't been in the Baltic for, for a while. And we went up there, sailed up. It's not that far. It takes you about a week from here if you're not killing yourself. And um, it is so beautiful, mm. and it's so easy, and there's no tide. And the water's flat, most of the plant. I mean, it can kick up a sea, the Baltic Sea, but there, there are great swathes of it that are completely covered in islands and rocks. Mm. And you can sail in there, and of course the water's flat in amongst all those islands. And I love to sail in flat water. It's a lovely thing yeah. just to feel the boat just lean to the wind and get a, get a shoulder in and just sail and not have to negotiate all these blooming waves all the time that we have down here. And the English Channel's shocking. Because not only have we got the Atlantic stomping in at us from the windward side, we've also got three or four knots of tide running straight into its teeth. Right. So it's like sailing in the Gulf Stream all the time. It's, it can be absolutely shocking. <laughs> but I love it. I like the channel and the tides because if you've got three knots of tide behind you and you've got a six-hour tide, on average that'll be two knots. So you're going to get 12 knots for 12 knots, 12 miles for free. So if you're sailing at six knots, you're going to sail the best part of 50 miles in six hours. That's not bad, is it? No. Well, when you're going the other way, you sail about 20, so that's not so good. But you time your passages, so it's always going your way. And it's like stepping onto the one of those fast walkways in the airport. You know, you get on there, it's like you've got seven league boots. So I enjoy that, but I like the flat water better. So we've kept the boat in the Baltic now for the last three years. Mm. And, and it's wonderful. We get in the car, and we cross the channel on the car in a ferry. And then we drive up through Europe, and that's great fun. We stop overnight in Holland, have a jolly good meal, and stay in a lovely hotel. And then we blast off across Germany. And here's the thing. When you're going across Germany, when you're on the motorway, you can go as fast as you like. There's <laughs> no speed limits. And I've got a turbocharged Saab. 
So I really enjoy sinking my foot into the, into the <laughs> carburetor and just letting her go. What a dream. I overtook a policeman doing 120 miles an hour and he just watched me go. <laughs> what a pleasure it is. So that's the trip across Germany. And then you're in Denmark and you're on the boat. Two days, wow. easy. And you have fun too. Yeah. I always wondered about, like, if I brought my boat up to Maine or someplace, you know, would I use it in, uh, as much? Because of, yeah, I've got to get there. And yeah. right, right now it, it's not an option because I work full time. But someday I could see myself planting the boat elsewhere. And, uh, you know. Well, but, here's how it works. Um, you need to be working for yourself uh, or retired if mm-hmm. you're going to do this. And what we do, we park the boat in, uh, in Denmark. We go up there, have the fun in the car, and we go, we'll pile all our stuff into the car and, and, and get on up there. And then we basically live on board the boat for three or four months mm. in the summertime. We sail to where we want to go within the Northlands, and there's so many wonderful places we can go. And the same for you in Maine. You've got to Newfoundland, couldn't you, or anyway. Mm. And, um, and, then, um, and then we come back to Denmark uh, at the end of the summer. We put the boat in a heated shed where she's hermetically sealed in perfect conditions. and um, and we go home, and then we do eight months' work at home. Right. And uh, when we're on the boat, I still write my columns, and we make lots of video, things, so that's good fun. But we enjoy doing that. It's, mm. not, it's not an onus. And, uh, and we have four months great sailing. And then eight months, we don't worry about the boat at all. So right. in the wintertime, when in the old days, we'd be sitting there, and the gales are rattling the tiles on the roof above my head, and I'm thinking, God, I hope the boat's all right. I left her, and uh, she's going to be blowing onto the berth. I hope that big fender doesn't burst. All that stuff, it's all behind me. I don't have to worry about that now. She's, she's in a warm shed, operated by Scandinavians. Professionals, <laughs> everyone. Lovely job. I noticed one of the first projects you did, or at least it looked like the first one on YouTube, was you installed a nice stove, a proper yeah. solid solid fuel stove. Yeah, I had a friend yeah. made, one, uh, made one out of soapstone for his 1945 wood schooner, and he stokes nice. that with coal in the morning, and it, it's good all day. Same for me. Mm. It's just great. And, uh, you know, it, it, in the summertime, that little stove is perfect. You get a, a cold snap or a really wet spell or something, you want to dry the boat out. Absolutely perfect. It works perfectly. And we've got no problem with the fuel. Um, I bring it from England, actually. I put it in the car and I, I put it all in little bags that I buy from the hardware store, all clean and nice. And I stow them all over the boat. So the weight's evenly distributed. It's no problem. There's lots of places on a Mason 44 where you can lose things. Mm. There's even places the customers men can't find, but I can't tell you about those. It's a wonderful ship. Right. And um, I've, I took coal up last year, and I had enough for this year as well. Mm. It's great. And um, uh, if I was, we spent the winter with the boat, uh, with the big pilot cutter in New York City a number of years ago. That was cold. Mm. And uh, this little stove wouldn't be big enough for that. But the, boat, the stove we had on the pilot cutter was, and we were burning the same sort of stuff because when I left England with that boat, we had half a ton of coal under the cockpit. <laughs> and that, that kept us going through the winter. And we got, we, we got some wood and you know, spread it out with that a bit. But it was good. And we were okay with it. No, they're wonderful things. Yeah. And they give you a, a dry heat. And all the products of combustion go out the chimney and no doubt pollute the atmosphere and will kill the planet. But I can live with that. It's not that big, is it? A stove on a boat, for goodness sake. Mm. And um, the great thing is that... Um, my friend Ed Burnett, the late Ed Burnett, the designer here, who's recently died, sadly, great loss, young man, uh, died before his time. He described the heat that's given out by a solid fuel stove in a boat as thick heat. He said it's thick mm. heat. 
And that's a wonderful description because that's what it is. Yeah. It's all right having a thing whirring away, burning your diesel and burning your batteries out and blowing it air all over your feet, making a lot of noise about it. Right. But you can't beat the solid fuel stove if you want thick heat. And also, you get to make a fire. Mm. You know, what a pleasure that is. It's, it's, it's a thing that, I don't know, it's a thing that a human being should do. I mean, it was one of the first things that set us aside from the animals, wasn't it? Mm. Making a fire. It's a primitive need. And it's one of those things that's been taken away from us by technology. And there's people being born now who will never make a fire. And there will be that little hole in their character. There'll be that degree of frustration and they'll never know what it is. But right. it's because they have a stove on their boat. So not only did you blow by a police officer in Germany, you did it with a load of coal in the car. I did. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, it probably came from Poland in the first place because that's where we get most of us from now. It's... <laughs> yes. that's funny my grandfather was a, a welder but a blacksmith hobbyist and very good and he always had a you know he had a coal forge and i it had got the smell had gotten away from me and when i met my wife she was living down in cornwall and when i first got there there was this smell in the air and i it brought me right back to my grandfather's blacksmith shop <laughs> that's it you know yeah, it's, it's it's a grand smell as long as it's not overdone right and it's good fun, you know, you first light it up, there's a lot of smoke comes out of that chimney till it's properly heated up. And once the coal's hot, it's special coal you get, smokeless coal, we call it smokeless coal. It's almost mm -hmm. pure anthracite. And once it's hot and burning, it burns absolutely clean. These days in marinas, I've found people look at me a bit old-fashioned when I flash up the fire on an autumn yeah. morning and all this smoke comes pouring out of the boat. And they, I've had complaints, but I've had to put them straight, you know, and explain that uh, this is the real world you live in today. So it doesn't cause a problem with your decks or anything? It, 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 no, you get a, there'll be the odd smut on the deck. You just wash it off with a bucket, no problem. Mm. It's okay. And you can burn it at sea. It'll burn at sea. Uh, yeah. We burnt these stoves all the way across the North Atlantic, going both ways. So t tell me more about this membership option you have on your website. Yeah, the way that fell about was this. The YouTube channel and the work that I do in the, in, the, in the journals, writing things, it started to generate more correspondence than we could cope with. Um, because like George Bernard Shaw, I always think no one should reply to everybody who writes to you. And it just, with YouTube, it just got too much. I couldn't do it. And so mm. what we had to do was uh, somehow communicate with people who were wanting to get in touch with us. And we do reply to most people. If somebody who's got a serious query that there's something to be said about, um, we'll reply to that intelligently. Uh, but if somebody just said, oh, really enjoyed that, thanks, mate. And, and uh, yeah, you, you can't say, oh, thanks for listening and all that stuff. You just right. can't do it. So, so we thought that we had to be a better way of getting in touch. Then I thought I was going to put out this, um, this series about astro-navigation, which people are going to have to pay for uh, on my website. And I took advice. Uh, from somebody who I work for, which is MAA, the Marine Advertising Agency, in, in Gosport, in, in, near Portsmouth, in, in England. They said, but look, we can do this for you. We can make, a, we can make your website so that it's available to everybody um, on a limited basis. Um, everybody can get at your YouTube channel, no problem with that, and, and, and they can find out whether they can hire you for a lecture or to be an expert witness or any of the other things that I do. But... Um, uh, we're going to make a special section that's just available for people who are really sort of interested in what you do um, on the technical side and also the lyrical stuff that you do. So they said, we'll make it a club. 
and um, you pay a modest amount of money. It's 15 quid a year. It's 15 pounds a year. It's nothing, you know. It's, it's, it's the price of a round of drinks. For that, people get access to all sorts of articles which are not available to the general public. They're coming up every month. There are two, two or three new ones. There's a lot of videos on there that are available. People can pay for them if they want. But if you're a member of the club, you get it for free. Mm. And, um, and every month we have this, um, this forum, which everybody's welcome to join in on. And that's becoming very interesting. All sorts of people come in on that. All over the world, you know, we've got Australians, Americans, and uh, lots of Brits, people from Holland. Uh, so that's, that's of great interest. And uh, I put out a newsletter every month that tells people what's going on. And, um, and it's doing well. We're getting uh, every day um, a little trickle of people is joining. And we've got hundreds of people now who are members. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll be up to the thousand before the, uh, well, before the end of the year. And it's, it's going nicely. And it's oh, a worthwhile thing. I'm pleased we're doing it. And it's challenging me because I've had to learn all sorts of new skills. To mm. uh, my wife has too. You know, she's been able to lay out the articles properly. Off my, you know, I'm writing the article. She's got to lay it out like a professional. So sure. what they buy, where they get the article for free, it looks like it's in a magazine. It's a proper thing. It's not just a load of text from me. Properly mm. laid out with pictures and everything. And uh, it's well, it's been a bit of a journey, quite honestly, Chris. But it's yeah. been good fun. I always love to learn new things. It's like the navigation. You know, when the when the GPS came along, um, I thought, well, I've got two choices here. I either become a luddite. And say there's no future in this, mm. um, but you can't put back time. You cannot stand in the face of progress when it's obviously a good thing. And so I thought, right, I'll become an expert on on on, uh, on electronic navigation. Mm. So I do, and I'm a fellow of the Royal Institute of Navigation, and I'm now writing books about that as well. Yeah. So um, it's it's been a great joy living through this great changes that have come to us, you know, and seeing yeah. seeing what happens and, and, and embracing the new when it works. And I'm in a real good job trashing it when it doesn't. I really enjoy that. If something's no good, I'll tell them, you know. Yeah. Well, I think you were spot on. Speaking of technology, old and new, when that Volvo boat hit that island or that that rock, and you explained very clearly the difference between Rasta and vector charts and how it translates to the technology in the new world, you know, in in the new environment. I was glad to have the opportunity to make that video. That's on YouTube. Um, it's about the, the loss of the Vestas Wind Volvo boat that ended up on a reef in the Indian Ocean. And uh, fascinating. Fascinating. And that's yeah. been watched by a lot of people. And there's been a lot of intelligent feedback from that. Mm. It's been really worth doing. It's great having a YouTube channel, actually, because you can just share all these thoughts with people. It's, very, it's enriching for me. Uh, mm. I love to do it. And it, I feel that... Uh, you know, with the YouTube channel, which is absolutely free, I feel I'm putting a lot back because the sea's given me everything. Mm. Um, everything I have and everything I am is, 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 has been given me by the sea. That and my dad and a few others in the early days. Right. And, and I'm grateful for that. The sea has been my great instructor, and it's really brilliant to be able to put a bit back. So what are your future cruising plans just in the, in the Baltic? Is that in the immediate future? Well, no, actually, funnily <laughs> enough, this year, if I had it not been for the COVID nonsense, uh, Ros and I were going to bring the boat down to the English Channel mm. uh, and spend three months cruising the English Channel because I write the pilot book for the English Channel. It's called the Shell Channel Pilot, and it's it's the most important book for the pilot for the Channel. Really, it's, most people have got it, and it's a big, big book. It's a massive amount of work, and mm. every four years or so, or three years, it used to be, it's four now because of well, COVID and one thing or another, we update it. And it means we have to sail up and down the channel, go into every port that's at issue, have a good look at it, talk to the harbour master, make some comments, 
and um, and write the book up again. So I'll mm. be doing that um, next summer. That's the plan. Uh, that'll be a challenge because getting down here is interesting. You usually have to beat down the North Sea because it'd be southwest. Now. It'd be northeast when you're going back up. You can bet you swim lots of it. That's what'll happen. And um, and then when you get here, channel's always a challenge. The tide is king. You must do what the tide tells you, and that's that's how it works. And uh, but I love it. I, I I love the channel. And writing the book's fun because you know we the, the navigation side of it's pretty technical and very professional but the my comments about what's in the port are very mm-hmm. personal and uh, i don't pull my punches you know if the landlord of the throttled ferret has hacked me off i'll say so <laughs> and um i get great fun out of this and they're really hacked off you know they say well you can't say i said well you threw me out what do you expect <laughs> <laughs> and uh and so we have a lot of fun talking about that if the toilets are not to snuff you know when you go into a marina if the toilets are rubbish i'll say so yeah. And then we get all these letters complaining from the hardmaster. You didn't like our toilets, but they were dirty and smelly. Sort them out. Right. And the customers love it because they know they're getting the facts of life, you know, when they buy the book. Great fun. Really enjoy it. But if something's good, we'll say so. I can't sure. be too fulsome with my praise when something works well. Yeah, one of the things that w- that place we mentioned earlier where you tied up that little basin uh, with the park bench, years yeah. later, I remember one of the harbor masters, Mr. Musel, put several of the BOC boats in there that had come over from Plymouth and he med oh, really? them, he med moored them in there and it lasted maybe one season. I, I could be wrong, but wouldn't, you know, the neighbors that live across the street from the park complained that, that they were afraid it would become an attraction and they didn't want it to ruin their view. And I don't know if somebody made some changes in the city, but no boats are allowed in there at all. And that's a great pity because uh, when we were there, um, I'm not sure if I told you this already. I can't remember what we've covered, but um, we were we were there at the time of the uh, when the Australians lifted the America's Cup. Right, and it was a good time for a Brit to be in town, really. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, they used to come in with a great song coming out. You know, the <laughs> the Men at Work song, absolutely yes. brilliant. And uh, we couldn't possibly. We'd just come down from Newfoundland on the Viking trip. We couldn't possibly afford the Marines. They were out. And the anchorages were all full up. And, you know, we wanted to be able to get ashore because we had crew on board. People need to get ashore, go to the bar. Can't be in the dinghy all the time. So um, my mate, Kenny, who lived in Washington Street, said, well, why don't you tie up here? You'll be all right. So we tied up to this park bench, which was concreted in so people couldn't pinch. A lot of locals were fishing Mm. in those days off the the dock there. And um, we got on well with them. We talked to them. I said, look, I hope we're not on the way. They said, well, you are a bit, but we'd like to have your boat because it's interesting. Because this was the old pilot cutter. It was dead ethnic, you know. It was beautiful, wonderful yeah. boat. Smelt of the sea. It smelt of Stockholm Times. Great. The police came down after five days. The trooper gets out of his patrol car, wanders across, and he says, what are you guys doing? I said, well, we're, you know, we're here. He said, who are you paying? I said, well, actually, we're not paying anybody, but nobody's complained. He said, well, what about these guys fishing? This is their place. I said, well, I, I, I can't say, but we seem to be getting on okay with them. So he wandered over and asked him, and he came back. He said, yeah, the guys say you're all right. If there's no complaints, you can stay. And he went, <laughs> and we had a free berth throughout the America's Cup. And what's very interesting in light of what you've just said, I don't know, we've been there for about a week. A gentleman came across the lawn, uh, the grass that's there, mm. and, uh, and he had a tray in his hand. And the tray had drinks and canapes on it. And he arrived, and he said, um, uh, I'm the uh, I'm the butler for the big house owner, and he said um, the uh, the owner of the house would like to welcome you to Newport and, and share 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 something with you. Wow. And uh, I brought you these things. 
from him. I said, well, will you tell your boss that we're very, very grateful. Today. We're very humble to be here. We're grateful to be in America. We're grateful to see the Aussies doing the right thing at last. <laughs> and um, we're particularly grateful to him for welcoming us personally in this way. And um, so that was the welcome we got, which was a mm. bit different, wasn't it? In yeah. 1983. Yeah, it yeah. was a different. Or was now, it 82? I don't know, whenever it was. It was, it was 1983, September of 1983. That, okay. That yeah, the, the yeah. was was lifted. They had to unbolt it from the New York Yacht Club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember a few years before, a few cups before, uh, Peter Scott, I think, was was skippering the 12 meter for Britain, and uh, and he, uh, the, your skipper was Buzz Mosbacher. Oh yeah. And um, a Mosbacher sat at the bar in the New York Rock Club, and he said, "You see, see that cup?" He said, "If ever that goes from here." You can get me and you can put my skull in its place. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite passionate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Great times. Brilliant. Well, thank you again. I, I appreciate you taking the time this afternoon, your time this afternoon, uh, to talk with me. And, and uh, again, your website is tomcunliffe.com. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, again, thank you very much. I enjoyed the time. I enjoyed it very much, Chris. It's been great talking to you. Nice to see your smiling face. Yeah, next time you're in Newport, if you're ever in Newport, please uh, give me a shout. For sure, I will. Thank you for listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Heaton. Sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.